Welcome back for the third episode in this series. The Arabian Campaign was the first story I wrote in this project. If you're familiar with Lovecraft's work, it will stand out pretty quickly as a retelling of the nameless city. But while Lovecraft tells the story in first person, from the perspective of a lone character, the Arabian Campaign is written with a third person style. As with each of the stories in this series, there's connections and homages to the mythos, but the goal is to branch out and do something different and enjoyable. I hope I found the right balance in this story, but you can judge for yourself. The Humvee roared down the desert road, bouncing over potholes, crumbling concrete, and drifts of sand. Frank Zilka mentally compared the heavy steel behemoth to the jeeps he had driven in Korea. The ride was smoother, and the Humvee was quiet enough to actually listen to music. His jeep could pick up an AM station under Busan, but it was impossible to listen to anything at more than 30 miles an hour. If Captain Tucker was holding a steady speed, they were probably pushing past 70 miles per hour, and Garth Brooks' long neck bottle still comfortably came through the side speakers. There were occasional skips where the portable CD player encountered a scratch or when they hit a particular egregious pothole. When they had left Al-Udid Air Base behind for the highway, angling south and west toward Abu Shamara, Sam Tucker had explained that the danger in traveling the Qatari Highway during the day was the monotony. There was nothing but flat white desert racing by at a pace that burned the eyes with reflective light and unrelenting heat. At night, the darkness took the edge off the heat, but there were other dangers. There were no fences lining the roadways, so a stray camel were a potential risk for collision. Sam also claimed that Qatari drivers often drove without turning on headlights, a possibility that Frank found terrifying. But plausible. They had made small talk for the first couple hours on the road, but it was an awkward interaction. Frank had known Sam Tucker as a young man, had taught him state and local politics at the university. There was a familiarness to Sam from the four shared years, but there was also a distance. Frank was surprised that their shared experience rested not in political science or the university, but rather in the military. Sam had been deployed in 1991 to Iraq and a few years later to Bosnia. His experiences in the Air Force were far different from Frank's experiences in the Army as a Green Second Lieutenant in Korea, or later a Major in Vietnam, but those differences made for good stories. After passing through Abu Shamara and into Saudi Arabia, the conversation had stalled, and Sam had tucked a knee under the steering wheel and plugged in the portable CD player using a radio tuner and a cigarette lighter power port. Frank was grateful for the noise. The desert of Arabia put the prairies of North Dakota to shame for their deep emptiness. Frank had been uncertain about reaching out to Sam for assistance, but the young officer had enthusiastically answered his call to conduct a bit of guerrilla archaeology. Frank had managed to construct a crude map by interrogating the aged grandchildren of nomads and local mystics. It had taken longer than expected, but there had been real progress. The first week in Doha had been lost simply getting oriented and pushing through jet lag. The Sheridan and associated shopping malls were easy enough to navigate. He had found it a simple matter to have the Sheridan staff arrange a cab to take him to various archives and museums. He kept a brochure of the ziggurat-esque hotel that he had shown to passing cab drivers to return to the Sheridan. Navigating the city had been easy, although the centrifugal forces generated as cab drivers took the ubiquitous four-lane roundabouts kept his blood pressure permanently elevated. When the chest pains had first started, he had been greatly concerned. He had considered taking a regular aspirin dose, but that carried other risks. The travel time from Minneapolis to Doha had been nearly 36 hours, and his weight and his age meant that he may have developed clotting from the long flights. What stayed his hand was the fear that a heavy dose of aspirin 
would knock a clot loose and kill him without warning. He had considered going to the hospital, but he had decided to wait. It was not a fully rational decision. On one hand, he was uncertain about health care in Qatar, but more significantly, he liked his own doctor. After a couple of days, the jet lag had worn off and the chest pain had faded. Dr. Zilka, Sam began, shouting over the noise of the road and Brooks Bella Wood. Could you grab the MREs from the back? Look for the chili mac, Sam instructed. If you want something for yourself, there's plenty. Avoid the chicken a la king. Frank twisted as best he could within the shotgun seat of the Humvee. It took a bit of rooting, but he located a couple of gray packs appropriately labeled. Frank handed one over to Sam, who again set his knee under the steering wheel and began tearing into the package with a well-practiced hand. You came prepared, Frank commented, a reference to the piles of gear and supplies loaded in the back of the Humvee. Eagle Scout, 1980, Sam replied. That and once we leave the road at Al-Kun, it gets pretty desolate, Frank nodded. They stopped to make camp that evening, with the ruins of the city in the distance. Sam used the last hour of light setting up a camp, a sequence of activities that involved pitching a tent, connecting a satellite phone, and setting up a small kerosene stove to heat supper. Frank spent the last hour of light sketching the outline of the city. It had looked like a crude pyramid half buried in the sand by untold scores of sandstorms. The terraced terrain of gray stone was barnacled by stone structures, low and flat. The city was simultaneously crude and massive, a feat of engineering that obeyed none of the imperatives of urban design. The oddity of it came to Frank as he sketched in his journal, and he shuddered in relief knowing that he would not need to explore the nameless city until morning. When the sun skipped below the horizon and sketching became functionally impossible, Sam turned on a small electric lantern. The Air Force officer sat propped against the driver's side wheel. The Humvee functioned as a barrier between the light and the gray ruins. Frank settled down next to his former student, leaned his back against the door of the vehicle. The light was a caustic bright blue given off by the LED bulbs. Sam's profile was lean and hawkish, and the angles of his face caught the lantern light only intensified the effect. His hair was buzzed short and had been a whitish sort of blonde. His skin, however, had turned leathery red bronze, darkened by months in a climate never intended for Scandinavians. Frank considered his own appearance he was a full foot shorter than his former student. Where Sam was muscular, Frank's form was awkward, lumpy, and round. Sam's jawline offered a similar contrast to Frank's loose jowls. Frank had long ago accepted that his absent neck gave him a toadish appearance, but even in his youth he lacked Sam's raptor features. Frank scratched at his scalp, bald save for wiry tufts that had merged with lumpy ears. His skin sheltered from decades in the weak North Dakota sun, was pink and peeling like a molting lizard. It itched. Sam noticed the exfoliating action and offered a note of commiseration. My first time in the Middle East, I tortured my head and neck. It took a whole summer to stop peeling. Sam's voice was a whisper in the vast darkness that had surrounded them. Of course, the Mediterranean coast isn't nearly as bad as the Arabian Peninsula. Frank nodded, tenderly pinching at his right ear, which had blistered and dried. It was crusty to the touch. Lebanon? Frank asked more to make conversation and distract from the pain than out of any real interest. No, it wasn't a military deployment, Sam clarified. It was just after my sophomore year at the university. I spent two months on an archaeological dig in Caesarea with Dr. Lawton. It was one of the few study abroad programs I could do with ROTC, and it helped me finish my history minor. I haven't been to Israel, Frank responded, 
while shifting his weight and trying to prevent his legs from falling asleep. That was a good program, Sam offered. Lawton worked us 14 hours a day for six hours of internship credit, but on weekends we could take day trips through the region. I saw quite a bit of the Holy Land, but security was really tight. There was a bus hijacking in Tel Aviv the month before we arrived. I'm kind of surprised the university let us go. Frank nodded in agreement. Lawton ran programs largely off the books. Back then, study abroad programs had a policy of don't ask, don't tell. Sam chuckled. There was a lull in the conversation, and Frank became aware of the oppressive stillness of the desert. Only the occasional creak of the cooling metal of the Humvee countered the emptiness. Sam likewise seemed unsettled by the quiet, and he again sought refuge in conversation. I didn't really think we'd find the ruins, the younger man said, while picking up pebbles and tossing them out into the dark beyond the lantern light. I shouldn't have doubted you. It just seemed, well, you're not an archaeologist, and they usually don't miss ancient cities that are actually still poking out of the desert. I was pretty sure we would find something, Frank replied. I talked to a lot of people, and there were some pretty specific details across different accounts, but I expected a fallen tower or a shell of a wall, not this. I didn't expect this, Sam nodded. The Arabian sun was a raging fire above them at 4 a.m. The light gouged its way through the heavy canvas of the tent and forced Frank and Sam up to face the day. They split a French toast MRE and filled canteens before striking camp and driving the last five miles stretched. Along the eastern edge, the walls of the city were fully submerged in sand. Sam used a sand drift to scale the city wall. Frank noted the different techniques required to push through sand and snow. Snowdrifts and ice patches could be surmounted by cautiously pulsing the gas pedal to build momentum, yet sand was a different creature, demanding an unrelenting aggressiveness to master. The Humvee crested the wall and then glided down a gentler inner slope. The exposed portion of the city was not massive. There were perhaps three well-defined levels, each hosting a geometrically declining number of buildings on each level. Each structure was short and squat, ill-fitted for human habitation. Yet upon exploration, Frank found there was considerable variation. Some structures were little more than shielded sleeping quarters, long buildings perhaps three feet in height. Other buildings seemed industrial in makeup, similarly low-roofed, but with channels and ventilation shafts offering light and air. And yet a third class of structures seemed religious. While there were no visible symbols or altars, the external structures were simply access points for vaulting domes cut into the crude pyramid structure undergirding the city. Early in their explorations, Sam withdrew a pocket knife and poked at a ubiquitous gray-red swirl stone, muttering all the while. When Frank inquired what was so distressing, Sam commented on the unusual striations in the stone. The red lines were evidence of iron, which in sedimentary stone suggested mineral-rich seas typical of the Precambrian era. Sam observed that such a formation was not unusual on the Arabian shield of Western Arabia, but that Eastern Arabia geology was much more recent. The observation prompted Frank to inquire about the young man's seemingly authoritative knowledge of geology. Sam confessed that his father was a rock hound, and after returning from an archaeological dig at Caesarea, he had taken Geology 330, Structural Geology, as well as Geology 410, Sedimentology and Stratigraphy. As they continued their explorations, Sam speculated that the stonework implied either some aberrant localized upthrusting of Precambrian stone formed during the Pleistocene epoch, or that the stone had been quarried and moved hundreds of miles. Frank had nothing to add to this line of speculation. 
The vision of a slave army dragging a city's worth of stone across the Arabian desert seemed unthinkable in its brutality. The third temple room they encountered held the first graven image Frank had yet to observe. Up until that point, the buildings were without exception bare, as if scoured clean by intent or by the ravages of time. This object appeared to be a small structure of a strange creature, or perhaps a deity, sort of an alligator-snouted seal with bulbous eyes of a frog and the belly of the Chinese legend Hotai. Sam took several pictures of the statue before carefully packing it into his backpack. The seventh and largest temple contained a complex grid of stone altars, all low to the ground. Frank again considered the subtle Asian touches throughout the ancient Warren. Tables set at a sitting height suggested a Japanese influence, or perhaps some more ancient civilization precursor. A slightly elevated altar sat not at the center of the room, but slightly off to the southeast. It was from this altar that Frank noticed a reflective blue-black glint sparked from Sam's lantern. The reflective wisp was revealed to be the edge of a steering wheel-sized disc of blue steel. The disc was, upon closer examination, actually twenty or more discs pressed together into a single metal plate marked by grooves of concentric circles. The circles were deep pockmarked with strange geometric shapes. Frank pulled the disc from the sand, marveling at its light weight as he dusted it, blowing fine particles from the pits and grooves. A second artifact marked the expedition a greater success than he'd ever hoped to see. Frank placed the disc in his backpack before finishing the circuit of the stone temple. As the sun tipped toward the west, they found a narrow opening leading to a crude but well-maintained stairway. The stone opening was too narrow for Frank to fit his bulk into, but Sam was able to wiggle through with no small difficulty. Frank checked his watch, noting that it would be dark in six hours. The two men deliberated for some time before a decision was reached. Sam would take the lantern and the radio and explore the underground portion of the city. Frank would continue his exploration above ground. Sam wanted to check in by radio every hour. If necessary, they would spend the night in their respective locations, Frank in the Humvee and Sam in the underbelly of the abandoned city. The plan was not without considerable risks. If Sam were to fall or become injured, there would be no way for Frank to provide assistance. He could use the satellite phone to call for help, which would take 12 hours by ground to arrive. If the Air Force was inclined to send a helicopter, that could be cut to perhaps three hours, but they were sitting on the outer edge of the operational range of a Black Hawk helicopter equipped with auxiliary fuel tanks. The risks to Sam were considerable, and yet Frank's attention kept selfishly returning to his own anxieties over spending a night in the ruins. In fairness, Sam had not listened to the nomadic world histories Thus, his anxieties about the expedition had not been primed by repeated warnings of some powerful evil. The warnings lavished on Frank by those who shared knowledge about the city's location were medieval in their gruesomeness. Frank cursed himself for his selfishness and for his childish fears and did not raise his concerns with Sam. Frank sensed that the younger man not only would be unswayed by the ancient legends, but would think Frank a coward for giving such stories credence. Thus, in the absence of Frank's objection, Sam's Tomb Raider fantasies carried the day, and the young man spelunked off in archaeological exploration. After the third check-in, Frank had given up further exploration of the city. He was lightheaded from the heat, and had explored every building within walking distance of the Humvee. He considered driving to a different section of the city, but feared accidentally driving out of radio range. Instead, he moved the Humvee next to the entrance to the stairway, and waited in the shade of the vehicle. His face had become red and hot, 
and painful to the touch. He had worn a hat to shield his bald head, but even so the sun had left his neck blistering, peeling, and in spots his nose was bleeding. He wondered how such a massive city could have been constructed in such unrelentingly brutal heat. He imagined men of ancient times working by moonlight and spending their days huddled hot and miserable in the oven-hot shade of stone huts. Sam had reported that he was still working his way down the steps. A three-hour descent would have been beyond Frank's physical potential. Even if he had been able to accompany Sam, the climb back would be doubly brutal, and Frank resigned himself to a night in the abandoned city. As Frank sat against the Humvee, he examined the blue steel disc he had found in the great temple. He traced his fingers across the ridges of the steel, marveling at how such a device could have survived the untold ages. The surface of the steel was cool, although Frank became aware of a subtle difference in the pits and the pockets of the plate of steel. It happened as much by accident as by some deep primordial skill at pattern recognition. At the first, Frank slid his fingers across the ridges, finding a sort of pleasant comfort in the act. After nearly an hour, Frank became aware of the subtle positive reinforcement that kept his attention fixed on the disc. With each pass of his fingers across the third innermost ring of the disc, a slight breeze would push past him, cooler than the superheated air that clung to the city. As his mind became near consciously aware of the pattern, he began to intensify the effort, passing a breeze back and forth across a particular location. The crushing heat of the Arabian desert was displaced by a cool but unpleasant air. A foul, metallic smell flared in his nostrils, but the relief the wind provided was palpable. Frank momentarily revised his image of the city's construction. He envisioned throngs of workers toiling under a scorching sun, while protected by a priest or mage or shaman wielding vents of metallic cold air. Frank could offer no mechanical account for the meteorological power called up by his fingers, yet the association was evident. When he eventually set his mind with conscious resolve to the disk, the result was sudden and potentially disastrous. The disc sparked, and the gentle breeze that had softened the heat of the evening turned violent. The wind bore down on him with a tornadic fury, and Frank scrambled for shelter in the Humvee against the stinging localized sandstorm. The roar of the wind rumbled in the lowest register of hearing, while a violent pinging of grains of sand against the Humvee were felt as vibrations rather than the high-frequency sonic impacts. Frank fumbled with the disc, seeking to locate the sandstorm on the disc, and then to tame it with his will. His fingers rubbed across the surface of the ridges until he found the electrical pulse of energy that he associated with the power of the wind. Frank applied his mind to the spot, pleading, demanding silence from nature. When the dangerous tornado of sand had stilled, Frank pushed open the door to the Humvee. The effect of the sandstorm had been corrosive beyond all belief. Across the front half of the Humvee, the paint had been stripped leaving the shine of recently burnished steel. The driver's side tire, however, had been eaten away in total so that the naked burnished steel rim sat half buried in the sand. Surveying the destruction, Frank swore and tossed the disc into the back seat of the Humvee. He carefully checked the other three tires, finding them intact and in passable shape. He retrieved a spare tire and jack and began working to undo the damage done by the sand and air and some strange power associated with the disc. The task of changing the tire was monstrously difficult. The desert sands denied any solid foundation upon which to set the jack. After several failed attempts, Frank was forced to limp the Humvee to an area of exposed Precambrian flagstones. 
The sun was nearly down when Frank managed to pull the bare rim free. The effort left him lightheaded, and his chest ached with a piercing pain that an aspirin extracted from the first aid kit only partially dulled. Frank tried to recover in the shade of the red-gray stone building. He tore open a chicken a la king MRE from the stash Sam had prepared. His appetite had largely abandoned him, which could be attributed to the heat, to the pain, or to the textureless pace and the smell of rancid chicken soup. Frank took as deep a breath as he could manage and wished desperately for a cigarette. In the 1960s, the army had packaged cigarettes and sea rations. The 30-year addiction that had resulted from his service left him itching for something to calm his nerves. To this end, the yellow goo squeezed from metallic plastic bags was utterly inadequate. Frank did his best at eating, but his breathing was labored, and he resigned himself to a shaded corner of red-black stone. The harsh squawk of the Humvee radio gouged Frank from his sleep. His eyes opened to the awful brightness of the Milky Way scorched across the night sky. Frank stumbled to the vehicle and passed along a crude affirmation that he was listening. The panic and terror registered through the radio cleared away the lingering tendrils of sleep. Sam's voice came through the speakers, exhausted and sobbing. The call to evacuate spurred Frank to action. By starlight, he lined the spare tire up and bolted into place. He was sweating from the effort. Frank considered leaving the jack and the rim where they lay next to the vehicle, but discipline prompted him to load the metal objects back into the Humvee. Frank drove the again usable vehicle to its earlier location in front of the narrow doorway and radioed Sam that he was ready to assist with an evacuation. It took another three hours before Sam emerged from the low crevice. The officer's face was black with a crust of dried blood, and his pants were torn open at the knees where repeated collisions against the stone had pulverized fabric and flesh and bone. Sam pulled himself into the passenger seat of the Humvee and croaked in order to drive. Spurred by Sam's terror, Frank charged through the city, accelerating as they neared the sand dune that they had scaled in entry to the ancient city. The Humvee roared up the gentle slope of sand, cresting the dune, with the momentum too great for the steeper outer slope. The Humvee shifted to the side and rolled. Frank's head slammed against the glass of the side window at least once maybe twice, as they tumbled the twenty-foot hypotenuse of sand. When the motion stopped, Frank's eyes focused first on the steering wheel. The instrument panel came into focus a moment later. The other details came slower. The pain, the rumble of the engine, the screams of Sam to drive. Frank shook off the disorientation of a concussion for a brief moment. Those critical seconds of lucidity were enough to work the Humvee out of the sand dune that had stopped their tumble. Frank's mind went blank as he accelerated the battered vehicle toward the southeast. The sun was cresting the eastern horizon when Frank's concussion softened enough to understand what was happening. The Humvee was parked not far from where they had camped the night before. Sam had the satellite phone out and was yelling into the receiver. The words were angry and agitated, but Frank didn't have the ability to focus on the details. When the yelling stopped, Sam was next to him in the passenger seat. The young man looked leaner and paler than he had when they had driven into the desert two nights earlier. Frank watched greedily as Sam took a swig from the canteen. Perhaps recognizing Frank's desire, Sam passed the canteen over. Frank noticed the airman's hand trembled, and his eyes never stopped sweeping the northwest horizon. Frank spun the cap on the water bottle open and worked down several swallows of water, hot and stale, before handing the canteen back. His head pounded and his throat was hoarse. Consequently, his words came out as a foggy croak. What was it you saw? 
Sam reached up and rubbed his face. Black and crusted blood flaked off, and shallow scratches across his face reopened, puckered lines oozing out blood. At first it was nothing, Sam said. It was just steps and darkness. The first hour. Before I checked in, there wasn't anything. I was going to go another half hour and then turn back. That's when the symbols started. And the murals. The, the walls and the steps, they were carved with panels of large symbols interspersed with the most elaborate bas-relief images. The carvings were lifelike and horrible. They showed devil creatures torturing human beings in the most medieval and macabre ways. It was worse than the kind of thing you hear about with those Taliban fuckers in Afghanistan or with the North Koreans. Frank nodded. What do you mean by devils? Frank asked. The warning passed down in Bedouin legend prickled at the back of his mind. Fuck, Sam said. They're kind of like that statue we found. They're kind of two-legged crocodile creatures that move about like seals. They have long curving horns like a yak or maybe a gazelle and bony plates. They're reptilian, but clever, and with hands that have evolved opposable thumbs. Sam wiped a smear of blood from his face. And claws. They definitely have claws. It sounds pretty monstrous, Frank said. He felt like he should reach a hand out and comfort the younger man, but instead he just sat with him, allowing a silence to exist. After a time, Sam continued, At first I just shrugged the shit off, and I didn't look too closely. It was fiction, or myth, or some kind of weird demonic iconography, but it also meant that I had located some ancient human civilization, maybe something no one had seen in a millennia. I, I wanted to go on. Frank nodded, but a sickening sense began to grow as the trajectory of events began to gain some kind of clarity. It was amazing, Sam said. For two hours, there were scenes of great civilizations. Human cities rose up all around, mass migrations filling the earth, all while climate turned and the land grew drier. The demon images were still in use, but I assume they were a way to symbolize the human denizens of that nameless city. Sam trailed off. Fuck, he said to himself, his mind drifting off on some other problem. I started to sense something was wrong when the bas-relief carvings began to show a mighty civilization making war upon all the earth. It depicted the city in some lush jungle, but that would be like 50,000 years ago, maybe before. It, it didn't make sense. The city is among the greatest wonders of the ancient world, but the pictorial history dates it to a time before humans managed writing or copper, or even the crudest mathematics. You said it didn't make sense, Frank observed. Do you have a theory? Sam nodded. He turned to meet Frank's eyes. Frank's earlier reticence to provide overt comfort broke. The young man was on the brink of a nervous breakdown. How about we stretch our legs, Frank proposed. The sun was rising, but it was still under 100 degrees, and the window for safely wandering the desert was closing. Sam shook his head. I'd rather stay near the Humvee, he said. Frank nodded and climbed out of the Humvee. His legs were wobbly as he had to support himself in the vehicle for a moment. When a wave of unsteadiness passed, he opened the rear door and rifled through packs, locating a half-drunk bottle of whiskey from the night before. Let's take a bit of a walk, he suggested a second time. We'll stay close. Frank hoisted the bottle up and shook it gently in further invitation. Sam shuddered and popped open the passenger door. They walked across the salt crust of the sand for a few minutes, 
simply passing the bottle back and forth between them. Frank recognized the combination of heat and alcohol and head injury would be frowned upon by his physician, yet the bottle seemed to calm the younger man. When the whiskey was gone, Sam hurled the bottle out into the sand where it crashed against the gravel and exploded into hundreds of shards, each catching the light on razored glass edges. When the mural stopped, Sam began without prompting from Frank. The side tunnel started. I passed a couple dozen before exploring. They forked like tree branches, and I kept to the left at every fork so I wouldn't lose my bearings. After six or seven forks, the tunnel ended in a room. Sam paused. Not a room. It was like being in a massive grain silo. It was perfectly round, and it extended up as far as my flashlight could show. Sam shuddered. I knew I was deep under the earth, but until I looked up in that room, I didn't realize. I didn't really understand just how deep down I had gone. I walked to the edge of the room. Every couple steps there was a niche cut back into the stone, just large enough for a box of wood and glass. There were twenty-five niches that I could make out at eye level, but there were more above. Every eight feet or so up another ring of niches was cut into stone, every eight feet up in that endless silo. After I checked other passageways, they all ended in identical silos, constructed to hold long cases. There was so much dust on the cases, I couldn't actually clean the glass. Over thousands of years, the dust had actually sunken into the surface. My first thought was that they were coffins, but the boxes weren't shaped right for humans, and a coffin seemed redundant given the utter isolation of the catacomb. The Egyptians used sarcophagi in deep tombs, Frank countered. They completed a loop around the Humvee, and Sam returned for the canteen. After a gulp of water, he returned to his telling. It's hard to explain, Sam said, but... I'm completely confident the cases were not for the dead. The bas-relief carvings depicted immolation ceremonies following battles. Entombment was antithetical to those who lived in the city. I can't possibly communicate to you their hatred for the deep earth. They would never stack their dead in neat rows underground. Frank nodded. I wish you'd taken some pictures of the carvings. You seem to have gleaned a lot from the stonework. Sam shrugged. I gained what they wanted to be known about their history. I wouldn't treat it as a definitive, complete account. It's propaganda. How do you mean? Frank asked. On the way down, I saw the panels as a sort of crude reverse history. There were symbols to accompany the carvings, but those didn't mean anything to me. But as I scrambled out from the depths of the city, I saw them in the order they were intended to be read. The story was one of a mighty civilization, weakened, driven underground by a shifting climate, and then denied a return to the surface by a new species that had grown numerous and displaced them. The panels depicted the torture and torment of humans, not as a warning to scare off intruders, but as an exhortation to violence. Frank stopped. He had known that Sam's account was building toward some horror, and yet what Sam was alluding to was beyond all imagining. If I follow you, and maybe I don't, but if I do, then you are claiming that the crocodile people in those stone carvings were the actual inhabitants of the city. Do I have that correct, Sam? Frank watched as Sam turned and faced him. The scratches across his face had crusted over again. Sam stood his ground and looked his former professor in the eye as he responded. I saw one of them. He took a deep breath and let it out. I killed one of them. Maybe. I think. Frank didn't offer a sign of surprise or disbelief. Instead, he started to plod forward. Sam fell into step next to him, and then the story poured out. 
Sam had found a room that looked like a storage room. The various crates and boxes were in good condition, but his exploration had been cut short by the attack. A creature, perhaps startled by his presence, had been hiding behind a barrel-like container. It had sprung upon him when his back had been turned and bore him to the ground. Claws raked across his face and cut into his back. Sam had managed to roll free and had been able to draw his sidearm before the creature came at him a second time. The caverns had roared as he emptied his pistol magazine into the creature. The thing flopped on the stone floor, squawking like a dying Archaeopteryx. The echoes of gunfire faded and were soon taken up by a new sort of rumbling, as if the entire tunnel system was stirring. The creature on the ground continued to thrash and call out, and the cave system became a buzzing beehive. Sam had pictured creatures waking in their casings and pushing free into the stale air of the catacomb. This second birthing would be followed by a march up the passage steps, spurred to anger and vengeance by the ancient carvings of Paleolithic wrongs. The creature on the ground had managed to right itself, and its squawking had seemed to shift from hurt to rage. Sam's courage had impressed the breaking point, and the reverberating boom of some giant metal door from somewhere in the deep totally unmanned him. Sam had fled back up the stairway, seeking to use his superior speed to outdistance whatever horrors waited in that depth. Frank listened to Sam's recounting of how his exploration had turned into a struggle for survival, and then a multi-hour flight up an endless staircase with demons from some ancient hell nipping at his heels. He was uncertain how to respond, and in his uncertain silence, the moment for response was lost. A low buzzing sound could be heard to the east. The sound filled Sam with a new terror. Oh fuck, he wailed. Oh fucking fuck, oh fuck me! The rest of his cries were lost as two massive and oddly shaped helicopters barreled toward the ancient city. Frank watched as the helicopters hovered for perhaps five minutes above the city before punching back to the east. Oh sweet Jesus, no! Sam was running to the Humvee. He had his satellite phone out and was mashing buttons when Frank finally caught back up to him. What happened? Frank shuddered after the officer. I call the city in as an Al-Qaeda base, Sam wailed. The exhausted existential terror that had held him in its grip was replaced by an urgent and immediate imperative of crisis management. Why would you do that? Frank asked, incredulous at the utterly bad judgment the officer had shown, passing false intelligence up the chain of command. Because they wouldn't fucking believe me, Sam snapped back. And because President Clinton's MO was to lob cruise missiles from subs, why the fuck did they send the Marines? God damn it! It might still be alright, Frank offered, trying to stay positive. He didn't state that the best case scenario at this point would be a court-martial for Captain Sam Tucker. The worst case scenario would be a court-martial and dozens of dead Marines and the start of a new interspecies war. We were in the city a long time and didn't see anything. They might not find anything. Sam nodded, letting the receiver of the satellite phone drop. He shuffled himself over to the shade of the Humvee. Frank lowered himself down next to the young man. They waited. It was an hour later that they first heard the faint popping of gunfire. The two men looked at each other, sick in the knowledge that the worst was indeed coming to pass. Get the helicopters back, Frank barked. I'm on it, Sam said, already scrambling toward the satellite phone. From the shade of the Humvee, Frank watched the outline of the nameless city as gunfire popcorned and the afternoon sun beat to the salt-crusted plains to a simmering white incandescence. The city became increasingly difficult to see 
as radiant heat distorted the light. Frank pushed himself to his feet and searched the back seat of the Humvee, looking for binoculars he had seen two days earlier. As he searched, he took an inventory of their assets. The list was short and consisted of a single vehicle, some basic supplies, a box of ammunition for Sam's sidearm, a satellite phone, two more days worth of food and water for the pair of them, a handful of artifacts looted from the city. Frank mopped the sweat from his forehead. The popping of distant gunfire seemed to stall. Frank swore and turned his attention back to the city. He fiddled with the binoculars, working to bring the city into focus. The binoculars were never intended to counter vision as bad as his own, but he managed to calibrate the view into something moderately blurry in time to see the explosion. Gravel and stone fountained from the wall of the city as a high explosive punched a hole through that ancient cyclopean red-black stone. Frank watched the dust clear, knowing what he would see. It was like watching himself at a distance and across the space of thirty years. A single file stream of camouflaged men vented out from the breach in the wall. He watched as they raced south in full retreat. Frank counted seventeen soldiers, which seemed too few for the two large helicopters. Helicopters! Frank shouted back to Sam. The officer shouted his reply while packing the satellite phone up. I'm getting this all third hand, but the CH-53's just finished mid-air refueling. They're on their way. Evac time is 20 minutes. Maybe 30. Frank nodded, unwilling to lower the binoculars lest he lose count of the Marines. At the 40-second figure, there was a gap of a couple minutes. Then a phalanx of green creatures began pouring out from the city gate a mile from the breach. Frank watched the pursuit in horror, realization dawning. They're not going to make it, he mumbled. The words were his own reckoning of the facts, but Sam was standing next to him, squinting out at the white-hot desert. What's happening? Sam asked. Frank handed the younger man the binoculars. They're outnumbered, they're carrying three wounded across rough terrain, he said, and they're being pursued. Sam watched the fleeing marines, and then the emerging ranks of the lizard-like soldiers. He lowered the binoculars. The choppers won't make it in time, Sam said quietly, reconciling himself with the facts. What do we do, Professor Zilka? he asked. Frank took a deep breath. He mopped the sweat from his forehead. He considered offering up some kind of confident bravado, but nothing came to him. He ran through the short list of their assets that they could bring to bear. There were three possible courses of action. They could use the Humvee like a weapon and try to ram the pursuing creatures. They could try to meet up with the fleeing marines, take on wounded, help speed the retreat. Or they could try something else. Frank hustled back to the Humvee as fast as he could manage. The pressed circled disc was still in the back seat. He extricated it and tried to call up the meteorological anomalies he had controlled within the city. The disc offered none of the subtle, tingling impulses that had guided him earlier. After a minute of trying, Frank gave up in frustration. Let's get down there, Sam, he said. You should drive. The Humvee bounced and roared across gravel and sand on an intercept course for the fleeing soldiers. Frank held the blue disc on his lap, trying to keep it steady as his fingers ran across the ridges, searching for some subtle spark or tingle that would tell him that the strange occult mechanics of the disc were operating. The absence of sensation as he concentrated on the disc worried him. His fervent hope was that the disc communicated with some mechanism or ward rooted in the nameless city, and that as they closed the distance it would become active once again. But other possibilities were in his mind. His head injury may have left him unable to provide the degree of focus that had called up the localized storm within the city, or he may have used up the energies contained within the disk, 
wasting the only potential weapon they might have in an experimentation, or the denizens of the city might be in control of its forces and its magics. And yet it didn't really matter. There was no other possible course. They both knew it. Sam was redlining the engine, knuckles white on the steering wheel. When they had first started on an intercept course, the plan had been to pick up the wounded and help speed the retreat, but events had taken that option from them. As they closed the distance, it became clear that the Marines had given up the retreat and had dug in, determined to fight until they were overrun. As the gap between pursuers and their quarry closed, only one real course of action remained possible. Sam hadn't spoken. He had simply pushed the Humvee further into the red, transforming the high-mobility, multi-purpose wheeled vehicle into a ground-based missile. As they closed on the Marine position, Frank felt the light tingle where his fingers rested across the disc. His shock at the resurgent power of the artifact prompted a yelp, and then a frenetic attempt at navigation. Using the wordless ancient map, he could feel himself in the disc. He could feel the speed with which they were moving toward a group of others, and another group less than a mile away, but closing. He could see it all through his fingertips, like reading some ancient electrostatic braille. Frank found a likely space between the two clusters of electric braille beings and dragged his finger across the space, pouring his will into the action. The disc crackled and sparked, and Frank's hand came away red and blistering. The effect of the desert was combustive. 200 meters in front of the Marines, powerful straight-line winds bore down with a demonic fury, sweeping at the desert until a trench had been cut into the sand and rock. The force of the wind sent up a channel of gravel into the sky, darkening the sun. What was that? Sam hollered in alarm. New plan, Frank barked back. I can't explain it, but your job is to get the wounded out. Sam nodded, laying on the horn to announce their arrival as they closed in the Marines through the cloud of dust settling about the area. Frank stepped out of the Humvee, the blue disc under his arm. His voice was croaky and weak as he called out, Wounded! To the Humvee! Everyone else make for the trench! The wind swallowed his words, but Sam was next to him, his battlefield commander's voice carrying across the desert. There was a moment of confusion, but when one of the Marine officers relayed the call, the men in the desert camouflage surged into action. Frank charged forward with the Marines as they made for the trench. He lost ground with each step, but he pushed himself forward. Sweat was stinging his eyes, and his lungs were raw from the dry, dust-choked air. He was halfway to the trench when the first Marines reached the position. It wasn't as high up as their earlier position, but it was a decent depth for a man to kneel in for cover. Another twenty meters, and the creatures came into view. They were as Sam had described, and no embellishment he could have offered would have overstated the monstrosity of the things. Frank tried to push himself to run faster, to close the distance to the trench before the creatures were upon them, but his body had nothing left to offer. He was stumbling forward on a simple momentum, and the pain in his left arm was stabbing. Frank could feel the disc begin to slip from his fingers. He was still twenty feet from the trench, an utterly impossible distance. Frank dropped to his knees. He realized he couldn't breathe, and the pain in his chest was crushing. The disc lay face up in front of him. The fire of the M16s was a drumline cadence. Frank rocked himself back and forth, gathering the last of his strength, and then he set his hand to the disc and called forth the gin. The effect was first evident in the electric blue fire that blazed up from the disc, scorching Frank's arm and face with occult power. For the space of three absent heartbeats, nothing seemed to stir, and then the power of nature responded to his command. The air felt thin as the barometric pressure plummeted. 
the change localized on Frank and moving out from him. Even in those early moments, the forces involved were otherworldly as the power built, the sand and the stone of the earth rose to give the tornadic storm a physical form. The storm roared out from Frank with the energy of the red spot scarring the face of Jupiter. The marines huddled in the trench as sand and gravel filled in around them. The creatures on the salt-crusted plain had no such shelter and faced the full fury of the storm demon. Stones by the millions were flung faster than the pitiful pellets of lead the marines had marshaled against the creatures. Sand burned through the air, imposing the erosion of millennia within the span of seconds. The storm bore down on the armies of the ancient city, burning hotter than the rage of eons that propelled them forward. Frank held his hand to the blue disc as long as he could, skin peeled back from his face and arm. Across his body, blisters formed, broke, and then formed and broke again. Be it seconds or hours, it was all the same as the two torments, one physical and one occult, vied for access to the limited ability of the human mind to process pain. From a strange distance, Frank was able to understand that the stabbing pain in his chest was the greater threat, for it warned of his imminent death. By contrast, the electrical blue fire ripping at nerve endings on his arm and face were transient, a reactive mechanism to guard against the casual use of such an awesome power. And yet the consequences were the same. The disc was like the stinger of a bee, wired to deliver a death blow to its owner, should its full power ever be used. Frank slumped. His eyes were open, but there was nothing to see. Dust obscuring the sun might account for the darkness, but he knew that it was something more. His brain was short on oxygen, and vision was shutting down. For a moment, Frank considered rallying, pushing himself back up, back into the fray, and then the realization that he had lost all sense of his limbs. He felt nothing but the cold fuzz of death, and then, to his horror, the gunfire returned, the popping was intensifying, and was joined by the terrified screams of the marines as ammunition began to run out and the monstrous advance continue. Frank had lost all gross motor control, but the tears flowing down his cheeks were released by a deeper, more primordial brain function. And then a new sound filled the air. Two rapid percussive sounds met his ears. Both were sounds he knew, and hope sprang anew in his dying mind. It was the sound of a 50 caliber machine gun. It was the sound of helicopters. It was the sound of rescue. He could see it in his imagination. One of the helicopters laying down fire while the other evacuated the Marines. No pulse! Frank heard the words and wondered who said them. Medic! Medic! A voice roared. Frank had screamed those words with that exact intensity three times in his life. He wondered who'd been shot. He realized he would never know the answer as darkness claimed his mind. Thank you for listening. If you're curious how this story compares to Lovecraft's original, I did a text analysis of the two stories. The results can be found at chroniclesofchesterfritz.com. The next story in the series, The Royal Archives, will return to the travels of Jim Galgadet, but we'll also get an update on Frank Zilka. I hope to have it available by the end of March.